I'm Rosemary Taylor. I'm one of the teachers here. And uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Bianca and Judith here. Uh, Judith started practicing 1973 before Minnesota Zenson even had this building, right? Yeah, in Dinky Town. In Dinky Town. <laughs> <laughs> so she started practicing then with Gary Roshi, our founder, and practiced with him until his death in 1990. And after that, she became one of the key founding founders, I would say the heart of the, of the founding of Clouds and Water Zen Center. And uh, that's where I met her. In 1996, the first time I ever walked into a Zendo, Judith was the first person I saw. So she uh, taught at Clouds and Water and still teaches there sometimes, I think. Uh, she taught there for a long time and was the guiding teacher there for nine or ten years. She is a fiber artist. If you haven't seen the quilt, the wall hanging in the in the founders hall, Judith made that just for us, donated it to us, and it's it's beyond beautiful. Also, she made the one in Moss Hall at Hope Eulogy. And, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and she's also an author and has a book coming out in the spring named called, if I can remember, <laughs> Untangling Karma, Intimate Zen Stories on Healing Trauma. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading it. So, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Let's get this on. Uh, well, let's start with an intention because we're talking about where to. Hopefully, I won't blab so much that I don't get to my topic. Uh, but whatever happens. But uh, I really want to talk about the Eightfold Path. And having an intention is one of the Eightfold Path, wise intention. So I'm very involved in what is my intention. Uh, I have intentions for my life. I have intentions for the week. I have intentions for the day. And I had intentions to this talk. So one of my hopes is that something I say will benefit somebody. <laughs> so that's my main intention, is that my experience might benefit someone. And then I have a personal intention. Oops, I'm going to be vulnerable again. But my personal intention is that my anger at my past and my anger at an institution will be transformed into just information that maybe we can all use. So those are my two intentions. Um, I feel very emotional to be here because I have a long history with this building. Um, I did uh, my first 17 years of practice in the Zendo on the other side. Uh, I had a very deep feeling for Kamajiri Roshi still. And also I helped start the Tulsa Buddhism program that's still running, I think. Uh, and uh, we did that in 2004 when there was almost no information about how to practice the 12 steps from a Buddhist viewpoint. And I love this Zendo. Um, it makes me high, this city. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I like about it is that there isn't a big 
barrier or boundary between inside the sendo and outside the sendo, which is very important to me now. Mostly I meditate in nature by myself at this point. Uh, so this is quite heavenly. I could sit and look at the trees um, while I'm sitting. So uh, four years ago, uh, four years ago, I had a crack in my universe, an explosion in my universe, and it coincided with me leaving Cousin Water. It was, um, I was supposedly going on a sabbatical. But I believe the sabbatical has turned into not bad. But anyway, at any rate, I uh, found something personal that happened in my life. I think I got a breakdown. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I, I really didn't. With my life, with what I meant to be as a teacher, with how I handled my husband and my children, with lots of things like that. I spent six weeks just kind of hiding out. Um, I couldn't sleep, and I remember Kundry Roshi telling me that when I had to cry and I was completely given a lot of practice, that I should just sit in front of the altar and cry. And so, you know, in the early days, we all slept in sleeping bags in the Zendro during session. So I went, I said, well, you're not going to do that. So I went downstairs and found my sleeping bag. And during that time, I slept in front of the altar. And that kind of calmed me down enough to be able to go to sleep. And I feel like, do you know about butterflies? Uh, the caterpillar goes into the cocoon. And they turn into liquid. Did you know that? Their whole structure dissolves. And then they reform themselves. Then they come out and they spend a little while just practicing and drying their wings. And then they fly away. And when my kids were little, we used to raise monarchs. So this whole process was very much in my family life. And that's kind of how I feel like what's just happened. You know, it happened once before in my life when I left Clouds and Water the first time. There was a big trauma at Clouds and Water and I left. And I also went into a cocoon and it was about four years long. And then I came out. So this actual lecture is part of my coming out. I think my wings are dry. And this is the third talk I've given since I uh, dropped out of sight. And in that time, I've done a, a lot of thinking and feeling and evaluating my life in Zen. Which is very scary to do because I used Zen for over 50 years as my root as my grounding place, as the thing I always return to. And if I don't have that, I feel quite lost or discombobulated or as Kevin children sometimes say, I feel kind of groundless, like I lost my ground. And when I was coming over here, I thought, well, this community knows more about this than me. Because this community has been dealing with the rituals and the protocol, that's my understanding, that contemporary sessions, you don't do a lot of the protocol. So um, actually, I can learn from you about how you do Zen without so much rigmarole is going on my expression. I don't know how to do Zen anymore. 
But I also feel like I'm giving, I'm expressing my understanding in my daily life more than I ever have. So I'm excited about that. So one thing that has come through true blue is the Four Noble Truths of the Eightfold Path. But I'm changing my emphasis on things. What I used to emphasize, I don't anymore. And that's what I'd like to share with you, is how my changes are happening within the context of the most basic teaching. Uh, the Four Noble Truths was Buddha's first teaching. And I believe that if you were to work with the Four Noble Truths on the Eightfold Path, and I'm emphasizing the Eightfold Path, that um, you could transform and feel uh, deeply spiritual. So, let's go. I'm going to kind of quickly go through the first three. Now, you know, those are very, very important and big deals. But um, I'm speaking to a kind of experienced audience, so I'm just going to do a little review of one, two, and three, and I'm mainly going to work on the Eightfold Path. So let's take the next lecture, uh, the next slide. Um, okay, we'll see if this works. Um, what I want to emphasize here is that cause and effect is built in to our understanding, Buddha's understanding. So sometimes I feel that um, misinterpretation, or I could even say my misinterpretation, was that cause and effect you have to get rid of because it's karma. And that somehow if you get rid of that or, or transcend that, you will then be liberated. And when I re-look at this, I see that cause and effect is one of the three characteristics of life and that it's built in. It's not something that can be dismissed. It's actually something that needs to be used and function as part of practice. It is practice. Karma. So the second truth, I'm not going to read it all because I think you guys know mostly these, but I just want to point out that the second truth is the cause of the first truth. That suffering is caused by how we handle our attachments. And the third truth, that uh, freedom of choice, that's what I like the most now. I can't even say enlightenment anymore because nobody knows what that means. It's a, it's a name that has no meaning as far as I'm concerned. But freedom, that's closer. Uh, being able to choose what I want to do is a kind of freedom or liberation. So I'm, oh, and Tanahan, dear Tanahan, actually just calls it well-being. How do we find well-being in our life? And that third truth is caused by the process of the Eightfold Path. Okay, next slide. Um, so this is the second noble truth. I just want to bring up my favorite Lojong slogan. Do you guys know the Lojong slogans? They are a Tibetan teaching. Um, and they have the practices from one, which is a certain type of meditation practice, and then there are 52 slogans that go along with that practice. The two of them together are merged. And they really are, in a lot of ways, the way the Tibetans deal with the emotional body of a human being. And 
Um, this is uh, one of my criticisms of Zen. So this is just my experience. You can agree with me or not. Um, I can handle it, I'm hoping, if you disagree with me. Uh, I think that Zen training is weak in helping people understand the emotional body, how to practice with the emotional body, and how to get through our karma from our history. Mostly in Zen practice, what I heard from Kanda Roshi was just let it go. Or don't be concerned with that, just be in the present moment. Now, I was so wacky and psychologically dysfunctional that that simply was not enough instruction for me. And I had to go to other modalities to find how to practice with my very disoriented emotional body. So I did, I went to Wojong and Tonglen. I found loving kindness. We'll talk about the divine modes uh, later, which was not, which was, is in Zen, but traditionally it was not emphasized. And I did uh, addiction recovery work and I did psychotherapy. Now I needed all of those to help me understand how to work with my emotional body, which I'm still working on. But the Lojan slogan that I almost love the most is at the top, three objects, three poisons, and three seeds of virtue. And I just like to say something about that, that it's very, very natural. The three objects is our natural response to life. I like it, I don't like it, but it doesn't matter to me. Even in our souls, they're doing that. When the blood goes by the cells, they say, I need that chemical, I don't need that chemical, or that chemical is toxic for me, or I don't care what goes by. Right? We're amoebas. Life is like a neutrality. So this is just the way life arises. The part that gets tricky is when we begin to attach to what we like, have hatred or aggression towards what we don't like. And neutrality is hard, but the way the Buddhists say it is ignorance. Denial, I sometimes use. Um, a lack of mindfulness. There's many things that could go in there. So the actual, the objects are okay, the poisons produce our suffering. And the practice is actually, when you see one of these arise, you plant a little seed of virtue. And that little seed could be the paramitas, uh, anything you're practicing, patience, love, um, forgiveness is a big one for me. So that's really is practice in a nutshell. You're so observant, you know what arises, you see it clearly, and you're able to react with a point of practice. Next slide. And I just wanted, I know that it will lens this goes along with the um, second noble truth. We like to, which side do you think we like to attach to? <laughs> Pleasure, pain, success, and praise. And I deal with this every single day. And the ones I don't like are pain, loss, failure, or blame, or criticism. So this is the framework in which you practice. We, and this is equanimity in terms of the divine goals or our practice is can we receive whatever arises, good or bad, right or wrong? That's what Dr. used to say. Can we receive whatever arises, no matter what wind? I used to always do this at Tons of Water if any of you are The worldly winds. Whatever wind is arriving or rising, you receive it. And then you figure out, is there a practice response? 
Well, how do I have to respond to the pain that's the wind of the moment? Okay, let's go. The next. This is the first talk I've ever given with Nass because I've been a reclusive for the whole during the pandemic. Okay. I wish I remembered who exactly emphasized the three bases. It might have been Stephen Batchelor, because I remember he had an English accent. But I really looked, got into this. So, you know, a school that has three things. This is the three legged stool. I beg of you, I urge you. That's in our night. I beg of you, everyone. I beg of you, everyone. The three stools, the three legs, have to be equally developed, or you will fall off the stools. And these are the three legs. Prajna, sometimes translated as wisdom, Samadhi, I got this new translation that I really like, Unification of the Mind. And Sila, or Ethics, and I've added Embodiment. Although I think Embodiment runs through the whole thing. It's not just in the third one, but that's where, for the time being, I'm putting it. Um, the main point is for me, if I want to feel like an integrated spiritual person, all three legs have to be equally cultivated. And as we get into the chart, is the chart next? Oh no. I'll just say now because it's arisen in my mind. When I first came into Buddhism, which was in the late 60s, we were all hippies. And we were all, maybe I'm exaggerating, so forgive me if I'm exaggerating, but many of the 60s and the early 70s practitioners were coming from a hippie mentality. We had all been doing drugs, and that's what we were interested in, is um, mental states. So we emphasized samadhi. In fact, that was almost the only thing we emphasized, and we said that's going to bring enlightenment. That karma, the seeds of convert Buddhism, which equals white, middle class, or upper class Buddhism in America, started from the seeds of overemphasizing samadhi. So that's our karmic root that I believe, and one of the reasons I am talking again, is that I, need, I believe that that needs to be pulled out and we need to reevaluate how we're looking at our uh, Buddhist practice. Next slide. Okay, the other thing I just want to say, do you guys use right effort, right still? Holistic? Oh, holistic. That's a good one. So, anyway, I'm trying to change my semantics. I was raised with right, everything right. So that's too close to right and wrong. It's not a proper... I wonder who chose that. Probably some Jesuit in France chose that language. Um, uh, the Palestine are people that I'm studying with now, Philip Moffat, are using wise. So I've been trying to change the wise. But since I've been talking about this, uh, Fish Farmer Murphy told me that Tidmahan is connected. That sounds really great. Like, connected insight, connected view, connected samadhi, connected behavior. That's really good. And we got another one, which is holistic. 
Okay, so I'm trying to change lines. We can change the chart. So I had a big fancy chart, uh, but it had right, 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 right all over the place. So I just did this by hand, and this is the chart. It's also kind of nice because if some people know me before Zooms, I always had a flip chart. That was my deal. If you came to a lecture of mine, I had a flip chart. And they all looked like this. <laughs> I see Rose here and nodding her head. So, anyway, I'll tell you how the origins of this chart was um, Clouds and Water has a prison sangha at Rush City Correctional Center. They have a beautiful name. Uh, unpolished Diamond Sangha. Oh. And I went there for many years. I love going there. And what I learned was they got the Eightfold Path. And one of the big guys that you would Across the street, if you saw him, he was the sweetest could be, actually. I loved him. He was very into Buddhism. He called the Eightfold Path his tool belt. And then when he went around the prison and he got reactive, first he told his friends that they, when they saw that his hands were punched, and he, his hands were classified as a weapon in the prison. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, when he, he said to his friends, if you see me clutch my hands, come up to me and say mindfulness. And then he would go to the Eightfold Path and decide what he needed to do. Isn't that beautiful? This is a lighter. Someone who was in for life, and he led, uh, he was an African American, and he led quite a lot of the black men in prison to a wholesome kind of wholesomeness through Buddhism. It was quite nice to see us smiling. Can you see that? <laughs> okay, so when I gave a talk in the prison, I almost always referred to this church because it was helpful for them to know what I was talking about, where it fit into the chart. Was it ethics? Was it wisdom? Was it um, concentration? And all of a sudden, I realized how great and important this chart was for me. So, and I slightly changed it. So I'm going to start with Samadhi. Let me just see if I go through all right, what is that? Um, because that's where I started. In the late 60s and the early 70s, I started with concentration and mindfulness. And what I'd just like to say quickly about that is concentration and mindfulness are both neutral. They are not ethics-based. They just are. Your mind is concentrated, and you're at one with what you're doing. But if you want to start working wisely, you have to have the backup of your ethical principles. That's what tells you what to do. So we didn't know anything about that. I'll just say two to Ahan. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers when Chinahan came here to MCMC, it was in the late 70s or the early 80s. He came to MCMC in his first round of going around America. He kind of rushing and Chinahan got along really well. Since I, I see, do you remember this? And the thing that Chinahan said when he connected to Convert American Buddhism. He just rolled his eyes and said, Oh my God, you guys have to work on ethics. <laughs> just spend the next 10 years on sealing. 
I'm actually suggesting that that's what we do now, years and years later. Uh, because I think the root of the karma got twisted. Do you know? Are you following what I'm saying? How we started, how Suzuki Roshi's and Maizumi Roshi and all of the people, they came with a full set of agenda that we reinterpreted it, I believe. Um, okay, then I'm going to take you. Wise effort is usually put on, in the samadhi line. But I think that wise effort applies to everything. And um, Kevin Children has the line, not too tight, not too loose. And this is one of my real strong readjustments. I'm going to take a breath. Speaking of wise effort. I'm a, I'm a Jew, and I came from a family who worked from the minute they got my parents, the minute they got up until the minute they went to bed, they were working. And they acquired a lot of power and money in their life. And I know that this was a reaction to World War II. They were proving that they weren't worthless, that they weren't animals, that they could contribute to society. But what I learned from my parents is work, workaholism. And it's, I'm still working on this, trying to bring spaciousness and pauses and feeling into my life rather than just work, work, work. And I find it very ironic and kind of weird <laughs> that I found Japanese Zen because I fit right in. They don't have rest period during sessions. In fact, what I learned traditionally is that they were trying to get you to be overly tired and um, exhausted so that their perceptual grid would soften up and something new would happen. Okay, I understand that. But it did not break my habit of what uh, Philip Moffat calls now resulting. Not practicing, but resulting. Always trying to get the next level or do it better or improve myself. Running around. I don't know if those of you who know me from the past can understand. I had I was driven. Makes me cry. And I was driven for a good cause. <laughs> Zen and enlightenment. And I got some support for doing that. Like, Dogen's phrase, practice with your hair on fire. And um, so I am really revisiting wise effort. Let's go to the next slide. So there is a flexibility that I'm trying to find with effort and with effortlessness. I have to confess, I don't know that much about effortlessness. And I actually think that's really important to say. That the I isn't trying to get someplace. Or that the I isn't um, fixing. One of my renunciations is I'm not going to try and fix anything. Nothing needs to be fixed. That's very, very different from everything from my will. So I, this is a major practice for me right now, is can I, oh, at the bottom, relaxing. Can I be available? Can I receive? Can I soften? Can I open? Can I invite? These are all words I did not hear in Zen practice. 
at least the kind I was involved in. I, mean, I, I know that you guys have changed a lot of things. I don't know how you're teaching now. But that's what I'm interested in at the moment, is receiving my life, trusting. Like, for example, right now, I don't know what to do with my, I have 50 years of experience, you know? What should I do with all that? And I'm just saying, what you should do with that will come to you. It will happen. You know, even today, it feels like it's happening. That what I'm supposed to do next is effortlessly occurring. And that's very different than my usual modus operandi. Oh, and I just want to talk about wise amount. I'm laughing because Jews were geared, yeah, seats that we want to add another <laughs> So right at the moment, I'm putting it under wise effort. I think it could also go under wise behavior. And maybe it's because I had been an addict in my life uh, that I came on to this. But wise amount? What's the wise amount of food? What's the wise amount of TV? What's the wise amount of Zooming? What's the wise amount of exercise? What's the wise amount of interfering in my kid's life? Etc. Etc. Okay, next slide. Okay, now I want to move to wisdom, prajna wisdom. Oh, I didn't put on this chart. Pim Children has a wonderful, uh, very short slogan. What helps and what doesn't help? That's discernment from our wisdom. Um, and I would like to wise view uh, wise, uh, this is the way I experience it in my body. Wise view is like an umbrella that's slightly behind me, that's looking at the world, at my karma, at my life, and holding it with a very large perspective. Let's do the next slide. Because I think that, okay. This is from a Tibetan teacher, change of operations in the mind and our perceptions to be united with the truth. Oh, here is wisdom knows what helps and what hurts. So um, even in the first noble truth, the holy pain, when you're in pain, there's no denying there. You don't have to get away from it. You just have to be it. You just have to receive the pain that is yours to receive. But you can have this big umbrella of right view that actually helps hold the pain that you have to endure, even if it's a huge pain. For example, I think sleeping by my altar was a way of framing the pain I was in from a larger perspective. Let's go to the next slide. So the first time I gave this lecture with the PowerPoint, I only had the three seals because that's how I learned what I do, which is impermanence, no centralized self, Oh, the third seal, I just have to say. When I was coming up as a Zen person, the third seal was always samsara. And then all of a sudden, like 10 years ago, both the Dalai Lama and Tibetan changed it to Nirvana. It's like, and then I saw it, I thought, whoa, what are they doing? That's the And I've been thinking about it a lot. And now my point of view is that it is the understanding of cause and effect that you can change, you can transform samsara into nirvana through your understanding 
how you're holding your life and your practice. So now I kind of think the third seal is that transformation is possible. And then after the last lecture I gave, someone said, well, this was all abstract, you know, or not about embodiment, like more about the absolute. And I thought, well, that's not how I'm seeing it anymore. So I decided to put the four divine bows, the heart qualities in wisdom, with wisdom, with my umbrella. And I just want to tell a little story about the four divine bowls. And it has to do with Padre Roche. I think I'm inspired by being an MCMC. So being a Jew, emotions and passion are, you know, I want to yell at the Zendo. Nobody wanted me to yell at the Zendo. Let me tell you. Now, if I feel like that, I'm going to yell at the Zendo. But that's just because I'm 70 years old and I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Ask Kandiri Roshi about emotions and passion and where does that fit in? And he would always dismiss me. Is that how you remember it? No. Anyway, I remember it as kind of a dismissing, like, uh, he just didn't want to deal with that. And he said, that's not about what we're doing, and that's about attachment. Passion is attachment. And that, that idea, I feel, strangles me. I can't do that idea anymore. And the interesting thing was, at that time, we, he was just starting to let people teach instead of him. And it was the Shiloh priests and Michael O'Neill and Judith Gutierrez. That was the phrase. <laughs> So I guess I was a lay teacher at that time. And we were teaching the paramitas, and I got the paramita of concentration, which I was so happy about, because that was the most important thing, I thought, at that time. And also, I'm, I'm pretty good at concentrating. That was one of my gifts, that I could sit down and I think because my parents were, you know, they were really concentrated. I learned how to do that. Uh, anyway, I started studying concentration from the point of view of the parents. And you know what I found? The divine bows, uh, the Brahmalaharas, for those of you who have a different language, they were under concentration. That when you're concentrated, that is the field you're playing in. Compassion, kindness, joy, equanimity. Oh, that changed my life, that insight. So now I'm putting it just for, I don't exactly know where to put it, but I think that, again, this is from my, my, experience, I don't think Zen emphasizes heart opening enough. I don't think it emphasizes compassion enough. Now, maybe in the 21st century that's changed. And maybe in the last four years that I've been out of it, I haven't been listening to anybody's thoughts. Maybe that's changing. And maybe I'm just part of the whole voice. That is the collective voice that is saying that. But when I was teaching, in my heavily teaching life, I did open Zen up because the emotion, my emotional body was crying out for attention. So I taught Tom Lenz and Mojang's movements, and I did loving kindness. We did a lot of loving kindness that I learned from Vipassana. And even during Sushin, we had body work and we had loving kindness. Uh, guided, oh, a guided meditation in the Zendo. <laughs> now, that was not allowed 10 years ago. 
But of course, now in the 21st century, perhaps we do it. But um, it was a breakthrough for me to add those things to suggest. But in my opinion, now that's still not enough of a change. Uh, I, I think there needs to be a deep structural change. I don't know how to do it. And as I said, maybe you guys have more wisdom about this than I do. Because you've been working with structural changes for a long time. But uh, for me, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, except what I'm doing, which is sharing uh, my questions. Okay, let's go to the next slide. We're still on the wisdom side of the chart. So why is intention? So, as I said in the very beginning, this is a very important part of my practice. If you don't know what your intention is, you can't line up your mindfulness. Everything has to be in alignment. And it starts with your vow. A vow is a type of intention. And your mindfulness, your concentration, your emotional body, your behavior have to come into alignment with your vow or your intention. So, I just wrote, wrote those down because those are some of the vows I'm uh, contemplating uh, now. And certainly the Bodhisattva vow is in there for us Mahayana Buddhists. One thing I like about the Bodhisattva vows yeah, I think this is how bad am I? I'm almost there. Uh, maturation. I think this is a maturation in spiritual life where you just stop thinking about I, 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 I. And the Bodhisattva Bhava is one that helps me think that my behavior, what I give to the world, is for the benefit of the whole. It's not that I get enlightened. That's very 2,000-year-old, old school. Um, it's because there's no centralized I, the whole body gets enlightened together. Oh, and what I mean by the whole body is everybody interdependent. So I, I work, practice, I learn, I teach myself every day that when I'm starting to say I, what I mean is interdependence. Like, I'll just give you an example. I get afraid to talk like this, public talking. And um, I'm afraid of criticism. Well, well, that's very centralized around an I. So if I'm going to give a Buddhist talk, I need to somehow elevate that and say, this talk is a collective talk. It's all of us. You're informing me if my intuition is open. 21st century Buddhism is informing the talk. It's not just me. And when I think like that, I get less nervous. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Okay, now we're going to move to ethics and embodiment. Again, I want to say embodiment runs. I should probably put embodiment within the inside of the triangle. That's my next move. <laughs> I just got something for the chart. Embodiment should be on the inside of the triangle. But again, I have said for 20 years that what good is samadhi and prajna if it doesn't go through your behavior? You know, and I've said this a million times because I've been around teachers who have bad behavior. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're more concentrated than me. Or you're more, you can answer poems faster than I can. But there's something really wrong. <laughs> Because your behavior is not in alignment with your intentions or your vow. So I can't stress this enough. 
that this sila, this base, has been underdeveloped. In my opinion, in Buddha, in, I don't know the other Buddhisms, but certainly in, in American convert Zen. Because I don't think that's true of ethnic Buddhism. I think they actually start with ethics. That's like, you know, the parameters are in a line. Well, I started with concentration, which is kind of like, what is that, the fifth one? I didn't start with generosity. I didn't start with ethics. I didn't start with patience. I just kicked over those and went to concentration. But you can't be an integrated human being without those, without ethics. And we want to, the next slide, let's do the next slide, which is, um, let's do the next slide. The precepts, okay. Um, so, when I first came into Buddhism, you did learn the precepts when you took Jita. So, every three years, there would be a series of lectures on the precepts. But the practice of the precepts were not emphasized. And I think they need to be emphasized. For example, in the last four years, it's not exactly, well, it is part of the precepts, but I've been heavily investigating wise speech. I've been doing nonviolent communication after Wazoo so that I can change how I'm speaking to people because my speech was not in alignment with my vows. So when I realized that, I really, I kind of stopped everything and started to really look at how I was talking to people. Okay, and the last slide, I think it's the last slide, is that right? So, um, everything, well, all the new stuff is new, but I don't know when this was written, what, seven years ago or so, I wrote the uh, introduction to this, and it's all about what I am talking about today. So, if you're interested in reading more, you could read the introduction to this book. However... The last seven years, I've become more clear on what I'm emphasizing. So, thankfully, we have a little time for how did that land on you? Know.